Well, amen, and good morning once again, church. If you are joining us by way of live stream, welcome. If you're in the gym, welcome. We're glad that you are here, and if you were here in time to make it into the sanctuary, we're so glad to see you as well. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, as we begin the Advent season, I enjoy this season very much, um, being with family and reflecting on the Christmas story, and we're going to do that again this year, and I want to share with you um, that hope is here. Uh, the title of, of the series over the next several Advent Sundays is Hope is Here. Uh, I think we need to be reminded in 2020 that we have a reason to hope. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and make your way to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And I, I want to speak on the subject this morning that hope is here because the Bible is true. Hope is here because the Bible is true. You can look all over the world for some other source of having hope, but if the Bible's not true, then we are indeed hopeless. We don't have any reason to have hope. But because the Bible is true, we have every reason to hope. Would you hear with me in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, the word of God? Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary's wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he named him Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your son. We thank you that his name is Jesus, that Jesus is salvation, and that because your word is true, because Jesus was promised centuries before he came, and he came just as he was announced, that we, even in the middle of a global pandemic, even in a year that is 2020, we have reason to hope. And we give you praise for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Of the 42 years that God has granted me on this planet, I don't know if there has been another year in my life that has felt more uncertain than the year 2020. You know, I, I remember not that long ago thinking about how glorious 2020 was going to be. I used to work at Southeastern Seminary, and I remember going through vision seminars on the future and all the things that we could do to make 2020 just a pivotal, wonderful year in the life of our institution. And no one had global pandemic and wearing masks and social distancing on their mind. I didn't even know what social distancing was until 2020, and I would soon like to forget it and give every single one of you a hug and a holy kiss. Just saying, holy kiss has never sounded more um, appropriate than right now. I'm ready even for the holy kiss. Uh, to be sure, 
There have been times in the past that have been even worse than 2020, wars and plagues and revolutions, but 2020 has been 2020 enough for me already and probably for you as well. Nearly every month has come with new expert opinions and fact checkers and new policy guidance and a new debate, and that's just talking about COVID, not to mention a presidential election year, quarantine, social media, and all these other things have made 2020 a year full of uncertainty and full of worry and anxiety and doubt. And uncertainty is difficult because the absence of certainty, or at least the illusion of certainty in one's life, can be paralyzing. The lack of certainty can make us anxious and sleepless and depressed. When nothing is certain in our lives, we often grasp to try and control the uncontrollable. There's this whole world of psychological study on the, the need to feel like someone is in control, even to live. And yet, 2020 has proven anything to us. We are not in control of our lives. Every day, we hear stories and confront realities that remind us we are not fundamentally in control. A friend gets cancer. Parents die, leaving behind their young children. Homes flood. Stock markets crash. A mom and dad lose their child in a freak accident. All of these things are simply things that I know of personally that happened in 2020. In an instant, the idea that we are in control is exposed for what it is. An illusion. And quite frankly, church, it's idolatry. Because God is in control. We are not God. God is God. And we should not be surprised that our need for control has been exposed. And we should not be surprised that this world is out of control. Jesus said, to his disciples, in this world you're going to have tribulation or trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. The certainty that I need and that you need to put one foot in front of the other and to live the lives that we've been given does not come from the world. Yes, 2020 has been more 2020 than any other year I can remember, but the truth is that life in a fallen world will always be varying degrees of crazy. I talked with one of our students. I said, how do you say crazy in, in Generation Z? And they said, that's crazy. We just said cray-cray. But it's, it's been a nutty year. So as I've considered, what, what, what are we going to discuss over the next four Sundays? I want to take a fresh look at the Christmas story in this Advent season. And what God has put on my heart is that we need to be reminded of the certain hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We, we need to be reminded that in a world of uncertainty, we can know for certain that we have life everlasting in glory with Jesus Christ our King. I, I imagine that Joseph's world was more than a little bit nutty when an angel showed up to announce that his fiance was carrying a son in her womb courtesy of, yeah, the Holy Spirit. And the only thing that could make the trouble of his life in that moment make any sense at all is what the angel tells him in verse 21. She's going to give birth to a son and you're going to name him Jesus 
for He will save His people from their sins. This is, this is not about you, Joseph, fundamentally. It's about the work of God. Matthew goes on to tell us in verses 22 and 23, this is no random event. It is the fulfillment of the promise recorded some eight centuries prior by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord promised He would come down and be among us and with us and for us by being born of a virgin to be our king and free us from the despair that comes to those who have no hope in this troubled world. So there's a logical conclusion that we can make based on the truth that Jesus is sent in fulfillment of the promise in Isaiah. If the Bible is true, it is the Bible that gives us the certainty that we need for life. The Apostle Peter says it this way, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. This means, church, that we need to know for certain not only that Jesus was born, but why He was born and what He accomplishes. Because Jesus has come as promised and according to God's plan, there's three truths I want to show you from verse 21 that are embedded in the Christmas story. And you're going to, some of you are going to say, man, that, that was pretty basic this morning. It's going, to be, it's going to be really basic today. But these are bedrock fundamental truths that we must not forget if we're going to understand the gospel and why Jesus has come. Are you ready? Really basic, I promise. Verse, the first point this morning from verse 21, people are sinners. Secondly, as we'll see in a moment, our sin leads to everlasting death. And finally, Jesus is God's salvation. First, people are sinners. Did you realize people are sinners? I love Christmas. I love the lights and the family and the food and the gifts and the different approaches to unwrapping a present. My, my grandfather, long since been with the Lord, uh, tried to save the wrapping paper. I mean, who does that? He would get out his pocket knife and cut each piece of tape, and I would be like, Paul, Paul, what are you doing? He's like, well, you never know what's going to come up. I mean, he had apparently been through 2020 before. You never know, I might, might not be able to afford wrapping paper next year, so I'm just going to save it, just in case. Here's, here's my concern about Christmas, though. It seems we've made the incarnation of God, the fact that God came down to be with us by becoming like us, in a sense, wrapping Himself in our humanity. It, it seems to me that that sometimes we're more concerned about wrapping paper than the miracle that God came down and wrapped Himself in our humanity in order to save us. We get so wrapped up in the trivialization of Christmas. My son, the other day, he goes, Dad, why is it that Christmas and Easter, the two great days of the Christian religion, we weren't even talking about Christmas or Easter, he goes, why is it that Christmas and Easter get hijacked by the world and turned into an Easter bunny and Santa Claus. The two greatest moments in history that secure our salvation. And we get so wrapped up in a, in a narrative and a story that has nothing to do with what God sent His Son to do in our life. We can't understand Christmas, and we can't understand Easter 
Unless we understand we are sinners in need of a Savior. The Son of God did not come down to give us warm fuzzies every December. He came down because, as Jeremiah puts it, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And what is strange is that the presence of sin is the one doctrine of the Bible that we can prove. Like, we can prove it empirically. You can, you can shake it up, you can test it. You say, well, I don't, I don't believe in the incarnation, I can't see Jesus, I, I, don't, I don't feel Jesus right now, but you can prove sin. Go to any street corner at midnight, looking at a drug deal going down, look at gang violence and trafficking and racism and murder and pride and greed and corruption. There's no doubt that sin exists. Now, the world may not call it sin, They may try to explain it away as it was my upbringing, it's not really what I did, it's just something that I need to medicate. There's all these different stories that we tell about where sin comes from and why it's there, but at the end of the day, sin, we can demonstrate. This world is broken, it is fallen, it is turbulent because we sin. Sin is not an issue that we're supposed to manage. It is a corruption that defiles and it needs to be eradicated from our lives. It needs to be removed from our hearts. And that's why God came down to substitute Himself for us so He could make us brand new from the inside out. Not to cope with our sin, not to tolerate our sin, not to manage our sin, but to crucify it on the old rugged cross and be raised to raise us up to life everlasting in a whole new way of seeing the world and living for Him. The first story in the Bible helps us understand why the world is not as it ought to be. The reason is sin. You remember the story of Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve rejected God's Word. You remember the story, right? Adam is commanded, just don't eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve listens to that old sneaky serpent. It wasn't enough for Eve to Know the good that is God and to rely on God. Instead, do you you catch what goes on in Genesis 2 and 3? She wants to be her own God. Satan says, you know what? You could really know the good life apart from God. You, You could determine your own good, which is sin. Self determination and insisting on determining our own good is sin. And sin brings all kinds of consequences. Do you remember the story in Genesis 3? Adam, Adam joined in. Sure, if my wife's going to do it, I'm going to do it. They recognized their nakedness. Experiencing the guilt and shame that comes when we sin against God. They went from enjoying the presence of God in a garden perfectly suited to worship Him. They went from that to hiding from God their Maker. And when God found them, they played the blame game. Do you remember this? Adam... Blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And God said, look, you can play the blame game all you want, but you're responsible for your sin. And the Bible is clear. God can use sin for His glory, but mankind is responsible for his sin. Who is responsible for Adam's sin? Adam, period. Who's responsible for Eve's sin? Eve, period. Now, God works through their sin to bring glory to Christ, the Savior. Here's here's the irony of the story. Eve got what the serpent promised. It just wasn't what she expected. Sin always over-promises and under-delivers. 
When she rebelled against God, she suddenly came to know both good and evil. Before, all that she knew was the good. And in a moment, she knew the wickedness of rebelling against God. When sin entered the picture, she knew through her own experience the pain of being separated from her Creator. And the the appeal to our flesh of being our own God has infected every single one of us ever since the sin of Adam and Eve. The Apostle Paul summarizes the witness of the Bible with respect to sin this way. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's three different words in the Bible for sin. In verse 21, the word we find is the word to miss the mark. It's the most common word used in the Bible for sin. And I don't know if you've heard this term preached before, like, well, it's like going out and having target practice and you miss the target, so sin is making a mistake. It's just missing the target. It's not that big of a deal. That's, that's not what the word is signifying. You see, the mark that you've missed is not a target in target practice. The mark that you miss is the glory and majesty of God your Creator. And when you miss that target, it's a big, big, big mistake. Not, not a little mistake. It's a huge sin against a holy God. Another word for sin is iniquity. The word means to twist and to disfigure. When we twist our when we twist God's plan rather and his purposes primarily for the use of our bodies, iniquity is often refers to sin that is done in the body. When we twist God's plan and his purposes for the way we use our bodies, the result is a twisting and a disfiguring of our souls that drives us further from God and his truth. I never in my life, only been on the planet 42 years, But people are justifying all sorts of craziness. People who grew up in church, people who heard the Word of God preached, are now on Facebook and Twitter and social media doing things that are clearly contrary to the Word of God, declaring that God is okay with what they're doing. How does that happen? How does their mind and their heart get so deceived, like Eve, that they think they can determine their own good? One little taste of iniquity begins to warp the mind and the heart. It begins to impact your ability to reason and to process truth. And it sends you down a road of justifying your own belief that you can be your own God and that God can be okay with it. It's iniquity. The only rescue for this iniquity that is infecting our world is Jesus Christ came in the world. To save sinners. The last word for sin is transgression. It's the word used in Romans 5.14 to describe Adam's sin. It means to knowingly cross a line. My father and mother had a 1968 Chevrolet station wagon that they took my sister and I to vacations on. And there was a line in that bench seat, in the back seat. My sister was three and a half years younger than me. And I was God of my section of the seat. And if she crossed that line, she paid the price. Now the reality is, I am not holy and I am not God. But that's a little way of illustration of God is perfectly holy. And He's given us the rules and the parameters by which we can be in His presence. But when we say, 
I'm not interested in your rules. I'm not interested in your law. I'm not interested in your character. I'm not interested in your goodness. I want to determine that for myself. I want to cross the line. Then God lets you cross the line, but you don't get to come back unless you come through His Son. Sin had such a destructive force that even creation itself has been impacted. We live in a Turbulent, troubled, unpredicted, seemingly out of control world. Why? Because of sin. Romans 8.19 tells us creation groans, longing for the return of Jesus our Savior and the revelation of the sons of God. But of all the problems that there are with sin, cancer and disease, pain in childbirth, difficult marriages, twisted and distorted hearts, the biggest problem with sin is the second point of the sermon. Our sin leads to everlasting death and separation from the favorable presence of God. In the Garden of Eden, there weren't very many rules. Do you ever imagine what life would have been like in the garden before the tree, the tasting of the tree, of the, the fruit of the knowledge, fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I, I think about that probably more often than I should, and I often think, Adam, if you knew all you had to do was not eat of that tree, why didn't you make an axe and chop it down and throw it in the wilderness and be done with it already? In the garden, there weren't many rules. Have children. Do what's necessary to have children. Have fellowship with the Lord. Expand the garden to the ends of the earth. Have a lot of, lot of little worshipers to fill the, fill the planet. And then there was this. Just don't eat from that tree, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2.17 And you know what? Adam lived to be 930 years old. But he died on the day that he crossed God's line. Because of their sin, God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden and into the wilderness. They were physically breathing, but they were spiritually dead. Separated from the favorable presence of God with no way of return. The Apostle Paul says that this is true of us as well. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Did you catch that? Sinners who have not trusted Jesus for salvation are dead in their sin. They're alive, they're walking, but they're dead. They're the living dead. Even the good things that they try to do to cover up the darkness of their hearts won't work. And if they keep walking down this path, their physical death will cement forever their everlasting death and separation from God's presence. John 3.36 says this, The wrath of God abides on those who are dead in their sin. Hebrews 9.27 told us we get one shot at this life and then we face God as judge. Period. End of sentence. No purgatory. No in-between. Live life. Face judgment. And if we die in our sins, we die missing out on enjoying the loving presence of God for all eternity. People tell me, I can't believe God would allow you to go to hell forever. Where is that in the Bible? Revelation 14.11 The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. To sin against a person is one thing. To sin against an infinitely holy God is another. It is an everlasting offense unless you give your life to the everlasting Son of God who took your place. You see, that's the bad news, church. People are sinners. And sin brings everlasting death. We are rebels against the holy, righteous, omnipotent King of the universe. We said to Him, just like Adam and Eve, thanks, but I'm good. No thanks. We've got it. 
And in that moment that we crossed God's line, we stepped into death. And that, not a pandemic, not a bizarre election, not a terrible job market, that is the land of hopelessness. To know that you've been sent out of the presence of God with no way back, but I have some good news. God made made a way back. As Adam and Eve learn of the consequences of their sin, God is gracious and gives them a promise as well. And He says, look, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman, meaning Satan and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He's going to bruise you on the head and you'll bruise him on the heel. It's going to look like this son born of woman is going to be defeated, but through his apparent defeat, he will defeat the plans of Satan. And many sons will come to believe in Christ, the Son of God, and to glorify glorify Him, and to enjoy God's presence as they should. From this point forward, the people of God, from Adam and Eve forward, the people of God are those who look for and hope in this promised Son that God said would come. Isaiah foresees this Son is going to be born of a virgin. Why? Because He's got to be born without Adam's sin. And the only way for Jesus to be born without Adam's sin is for Him to not have a human father, but God is His Father. Ruth and Micah foresee that he will be born in Bethlehem. The Old Testament points to a son who's going to come and defeat Satan and rescue those who trust in him. And here is the promise of Christmas. The son that was promised in Genesis and in Isaiah and in Ruth and in Micah and every other book in between, that son has come. And his name is Emmanuel. He is with us. And when you trust in him, you'll find that he is for us. We do not know what tomorrow will bring, but we can know that our sins are forgiven, and that is the certainty that we need for living in a fallen world. We can know that our sins are forgiven because of point three. Jesus is God's salvation. The promised Son who saves God's people from their sin. The hope and wonder of Christmas is not found in a holly jolly myth of fanciful delusion. It is, it is not found with reindeer and corn cob pipes. The hope of Christmas is that we can be saved because God's Son has come. Though we were dead in our sins, God has sent the solution. He sent us Himself by sending God the Son. Look at the confident language in verse 21. I I love verse 21. You're going to name Him Jesus because He's going to save His people from their sins. Not He might, not we hope so. You're going to call Him Jesus because Jesus is going to save His people. Look, Joseph, you are going to be a great adoptive father. And I know that naming your son is a big deal, but you're going to name Him Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua, Salvation, Why? Not because it's a popular name. And Jesus, by the way, is a popular name. Just This is an aside for a moment, but but about every other Easter, somebody will say, hey, we found a tomb of Jesus with bones in it. Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. There were Jesuses all over Palestine. Just because you find some bones in a grave marked Jesus doesn't mean that Jesus isn't risen from the dead. Anyway, that was just for free. It was a popular name. But Joseph wasn't told to name Jesus Jesus just because it was the cool name. You know, you get the baby, baby books of names and you want to pick a name that's not going to be so weird that everybody makes fun of them in 
school, but I don't want it to be a name that everybody else has. So what, what name am I going to name my child? Joseph didn't have to go through any of that. The angel was just like, his name is Jesus. And his name is Jesus because that's who he is. Jesus is Jesus because Jesus is salvation. And the word Jesus means salvation. So why is Jesus Jesus? Because that is literally who he is. He is the long-expected Son of God and King of His people. It is why He came. It is what He does. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. He saves every person who will turn from their sin and trust in Him as the hope of salvation. Everyone who will trust that Jesus will deliver them from everlasting death to everlasting life, He'll do it. Every person who realizes you're a control freak in an uncontrollable world, He will free you from that idol and allow you to live life as it comes knowing that Jesus is your Savior if you'll give your life to Him. He will take you from defeat to victory. He will take you from despair to living hope if you will lay down your life and take up life in Jesus Christ. The Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, Includes these words, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. Has your soul yet felt the worth of the one who left heaven to be born and to die and to be raised for you? To forgive your sin and take your place and change your heart and give you a new life to live for His glory? Church, I'm here to tell you, if the Christmas story is true, the entire message of the Bible is true, and Jesus has come, therefore hope is here. In a world of uncertainty, people's souls, people who have souls weighed down by sin can be rescued because Jesus came just as God promised He would. So no matter this Sunday, how 2020 your life may be, I want to encourage you to put your feet down on this solid ground. As the Apostle Paul said, it is a trustworthy statement. What does that mean? You can take it to the bank. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In a world of uncertainty, you can be certain your sins are forgiven And know that your life is secure in Christ. Do you have that certainty this morning? If you're listening online or in the gym, do you know that you know that you know not only that you're a sinner, not only that your sin separates you from the presence of God and leads to everlasting death, but there's there's a way back through Jesus Christ who came to save you from your sins. If you don't know this Jesus, this salvation, we'd invite you as we stand and sing in just a moment, to come and let Him know you're a sinner, you're turning from your sin, and you want to have certainty that your sins are forgiven. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank You that You are great. That You have accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. God, we were dead. We were without hope. And Lord, we live in a world that is seemingly out of control, that is full of trouble. And God, this year has proven that to us. But You have reminded us this morning that You have given us Your sure word to make sense of the world in which we find ourselves and most importantly, to understand 
God, this longing in our hearts. Everywhere we seek after solutions, we seek after comfort, we seek after peace, and, and all of the things that we pursue don't work. But you sent Jesus. And in Jesus we find hope and comfort and peace, and ultimately and most assuredly we find salvation because He came to conquer sin, death, and the grave. So God, we praise You for the resurrection. We praise You for the incarnation. We praise You that because of Jesus we have hope this morning. And if there's anyone here who does not have that hope, or if there's anyone here who does have that hope and says, I'm ready to join with a church that wants to say to the whole world what the angel said to Joseph, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. God, we'd invite them to come. As we stand and sing, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.